0: the craving to be chosen and to be loved is universal, right? And incredibly strong, you know, throughout our lives.
1: Welcome to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Delbout. This week, back on the podcast, is my friend Savala. You might remember her from our 2019 episode, which was really rich and vulnerable. And I loved that conversation and meeting her, so we kept in touch ever since. And after today's long conversation, which you're about to hear, I remembered that she's one of my favorite people to talk to, my favorite conversation partners. And it was in fact so long that I'm breaking it into two parts. So today you'll be hearing part one of that conversation and a little bit about Savala. You can go back to the episode from 2019, which I'll link to in the show notes to So you can learn a bit more about her, but for right now, I'll tell you that she's a writer, a teacher, a social justice attorney, and the executive director of the Center for Social Justice at UC Berkeley School of Law. And get this, she has practiced law in San Francisco and was a law clerk in the Obama administration's office of White House Counsel, where she focused on constitutional law and That comes up her time there a little bit in her new book. She has this new book of essays. It's called Don't Let It Get You Down, and it has made a tremendous impact on me. I love the book so much. We discuss it at length in specific parts of these essays that really resonated with me. She's just such a tremendous writer. She's written about race and gender and bodies and culture, and she's been featured in Time and PR, Forbes. She's written for the Detroit Free Press, the San Francisco Chronicle and many more places she was recently published in Harper's Bazaar actually a excerpt of one of the essays that we talk about at length from her book. So I highly recommend getting yourself a hard copy of this book. And in this part one of our conversation, we cover her writing process. We dig into the first essay of the book, which is about relationships. And it's called Dating White Guys While Me. And through our conversation, we cover why Talking specifically and writing specifically allows us to relate and going more general doesn't really ground anywhere. We talk about intermittent reinforcement and aloofness and dating and connection and intimacy and feeling on the outside and writing and so much more. So let's get into that. If you want to know more about me and my work or join next semester of our creative membership called In Process, email me, Katie at let it out with three T's. The link will be in the show notes as well and the link to my first episode with Savala and tune in next week for part two of this conversation. I just went to lunch with my friend right before this and I brought your book with me because I just happened to have it in my bag. So I was like looking through it this morning and I sat there like reading an essay out loud to her because I was like, you have to just hear the writing on this.
0: Oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I I don't know that there were so many hopes I had for this book, but like one that was way, way up there was that the writing would be beautiful and sensory and, you know, that it would touch people in a certain way, just through the writing. So hearing you say that is, you know, it's icing on the very substantial cake. That is. This experience.
1: Well, I, have been chatting with you before we actually press record. But first of all, hi, and welcome back on to Let It Out. I'm so happy you're here. and what we're what we're talking about is your new book that is incredible. And congratulations. You know, it's this truly amazing book of essays that you recently published. And I'm so grateful to have gotten an advanced copy. and I'm really glad I got to read it before we spoke because I, I wrote you an email this morning being like, this is the best book that I've read this year. And I am so excited to have it on my bookshelf and be able to continue recommending it. And really grateful that, you know, it's part of my work that I get to have a conversation with someone who made something that was really meaningful to me. And I'm just so excited to, you know, selfishly get to talk about the book with you. And also to be honest, Savala, like I, Loved our conversation. That I'm not even sure what year that was. Maybe 2017, 2018.
0: It's a blur. I mean, that sounds right. It was yeah. pandemic. I know that. Yes.
1: Yes. And I was in New York and I get so many messages about that podcast episode and it was I I just love talking to you so much and and we kept in touch and and you've been so gracious to like be part of let it out. And we featured you in in process, which was like so great to read your answers. And I've just been so happy that we've gotten to, you know, stay in touch over all of this time. And I've been wanting to have you back on the podcast ever since you did the first episode. And I think, were you working on the book even back? I know you mentioned it. So I think you
0: had the book deal back then or like the idea for it maybe. I, gosh, I mean, if it was 2018, I, 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 may have been working on the proposal. If it was 2019, then I probably had the book deal, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I was probably working on it and, you know, just let me say that the pleasure is all mine. It's just been so wonderful to be in touch with you and be part of the community that you've built. And I feel like the lucky duck in this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that's so nice. Well truly it was one of my favorite conversations and if if people are are new to the podcast or just you know missed that one going back and listening to it and and hearing more of our where you were then it's like that's what I love about podcasting it's like such a time capsule of what mm-hmm. was on both of our minds and more about your your story and and today I'm really excited to catch up and so I think I'm most curious right now, before we even get into the book, what have the last several months been like for you? What was the pandemic like for you? I mean, we're still in it in a different way, but what are you excited by by now outside of the release of your book, which I really want to get in there with, but you know, what have you been learning or pondering recently?
0: Well, you're right. We're not out of the pandemic, but I too find myself referring to it in the past tense, you know, and then being so frustrated with myself. I am trying to replace that impulse with like saying lockdown. Yeah. Of sort of what I really mean, you know, when I say when I when I find myself saying in the pandemic, you know, like right. the pandemic was happening, what I really mean is when we were in lockdown and things felt so um <sighs> tenuous but also never ending it was this like endless period of feeling tenuous and i certainly felt that you know i was incredibly lucky i have a flexible job and my income and my household income was never impacted and covid did kind of move through some family members aunts and uncles and and cousins but no had a serious case And so we were incredibly lucky, like really about as lucky as you possibly can be. And I'm well, well aware of that relative to what so many other people have endured and are still enduring. And at the same time, you know, I had my challenges, namely around childcare, you know, I was home with my kiddo for seven or eight months, I guess. Well, my husband's an essential worker, so he was going to work and I was home with her. And how old is Gemma now? She is six. So this is when she was five. But being home with her, you know, any parent will tell you like that was a rough stretch of like attempting to be a working parent and a stay-at-home parent at the same time. I complain about it and grouse about it, like with a grain of salt, because overall, my situation was stable and lucky and sort of overprivileged relative to other people. But it was hard. It was definitely hard. I think the thing for me is just sort of attempting to manage my own anxiety that built up and didn't get processed in the lockdown period. And I find myself simultaneously really craving human contact and being sort of nervous about it at the same time, you know, so attempting to kind of thread my way through that because I know I need to be around people that very much nourishes me and feeds me. And I have this kind of like mild social anxiety that is new to me, um and I think is about kind of re-emerging into the public. So that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, the best thing has definitely been publishing the book as far as right. like the recent history of my life. And, you know, we'll talk more about that. But when I think about like what is giving me hope on a very personal level, it's, you know, that perhaps I'll have the opportunity and the time to write more and to continue writing now, you know, now that this book is out in the world and and yeah. is being like well-received.
1: How does it feel to have this book Out in the world, it just came out. I I, like what is your what's going on with like your nervous system right now because (laughs) it's so beautifully written, but you know, vulnerable and personal. Which you know, you've already shared a, a lot publicly in essays that I've read and what you've shared on podcasts, but this is
0: different, right? It is different. It's like, it's a magnitude that's just on a different level because it's 12 essays, right? And they're all stacked up against each other. And I do write about very vulnerable things, you know, from like family history to my own life. And I talk about my body a lot, you know, that kind of runs through the whole book and is sort of what roots the whole book and what ties all the pieces together. So yeah, there's there's some major vulnerability that goes along with this. I mean, I think I'm incredibly lucky that, in the period of months going up to publication, I had a lot of support and and encouragement from the various people, you know, who were on my book team, if I can call it that, right? From my editor, to my agent, like the people who were helping me get the book out into the world were really supportive and I trusted them all so deeply and I still do. And so they helped me kind of work through those moments when like, I think there was like at least two or three times when very early in the morning, I would call like my editor or my agent or something and be like, okay, I'm really freaking out about like this paragraph because it talks about, you know, something extremely vulnerable or something involving another person and my interpretation of how, You know, our lives collided, right? And they were able to kind of take me in hand and like talk me through the anxiety and remind me that it's very normal and that the truth is always vulnerable, but it's also solid, right? Like if you're being truthful about something, it's both vulnerable but very solid. It's not like flimsy, you know? So there's a way that you don't have to worry so much about it. And then having it be out in the world, like, I've been very lucky that the reviews have been good and people have, you know, the sort of informal reviews of just like friends and family have been positive and I feel okay. I thought I would feel more scared than I actually do. And maybe some of that is because I had, like I was saying, this sort of period of getting used to the idea that it was going to be on bookshelves and everyone around me really helping me kind of process that. And maybe part of it is simply because this is really the story that I I wanted to tell at this time. Like each of the essays is really exactly where I wanted it to be. And so there's a certain kind of confidence. I don't mean that in like a a bragging way or like a swaggering way, but just a sense that like I really got as close to the bone as I could with these pieces. And so the vulnerability that is in them is serving a purpose and it's truthful. And so I can kind of rest in that and not, and not feel too worried. Mm. Watch a horrible review come in from some newspaper like tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, I don't feel quite so confident, but so far I feel, I feel pretty confident about it and um, I don't have regrets.
1: I'm so happy to hear that. I wrote down something specifically about, memory and honesty and truth. And you can feel that in your writing. And well, I guess I just want to get into it. You know, I I wrote down so many notes throughout the book, but the way that you use language to illustrate your feelings and your experience in this book is, is truly remarkable, which, you know, is, I guess just what I'm saying is remarkable. That's great writing, you know, like I think that's and you clearly are a wonderful writer, but what is so remarkable to me about you in particular, and I, and I think I said this before we started recording, is that you know you have this really robust experience, and you you know you are obviously a writer, but you're also an attorney and a mother, and you've worked with the Obama administration, and you're someone who does so many things, and you're not just a, a brilliant author and writer, and it just it was really evident and, and reading your book, like just truly, you know, your, which I, again, I've read, read your essays and I've read your writing and I, and I knew I was like, so excited to read this as someone, I just enjoy your work so much. And I knew I would learn more about you from the book, but really the craft is, is what struck me more than, than anything. And I just, I, I wanted to say it again and again, because it is really brilliant. And you can tell you, you worked really hard on it and every word was so crafted. It, I think I was telling you in my email, but I, I read most of it while I was in Michigan and on the plane. And I remember just like highlighting things and, and little lines that I wrote down. There's this line early in the book where you say, I exist in both the dance floor and on the balcony, a space between, you know, that you kind of is a through line through the book. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that line and and what you mean?
0: Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for liking the writing. I mean, you know, that's very subjective and everything is not for everybody. So some people might not like the way I write, you know, and that's okay. But as someone who like loves poetry and loves people who are, who are really, they're stylists, right? Mm -hmm. They're not formalists when they write. I, I, I aspire to that too. And so I'm, I'm very appreciative Yeah. That compliment. The thing about being on the dance floor and the balcony at the same time is definitely a through line in the book. You know, it it pops up to one extent or another in, in every essay. And it comes from basically, you know, the ways that I am someone who straddles all these different divides in our culture and sort of exists in between. These poles in our culture and, you know, therefore is sort of dislocated, but also in multiple places at once. And just to kind of unpack that, you know, I'm black and I'm also white. I'm also Mexican, but I don't speak Spanish. I'm descended from enslaved people on my dad's side of the family and from slave holding people on my mom's side of the family. So, you know, you can guess my mom is the white side and my dad is the black side and also the Mexican side. I happen to have gone to very posh, Tony private schools for most of my life and, you know, have been in the kind of spaces where people who are very elite private schools hang out, you know. But I'm also not from money. And on my dad's side of the family, the generational poverty is pretty extreme. And that has been part of my experience. I don't describe myself as someone who grew up in poverty because that doesn't feel accurate to me. But when I stayed with my dad, you know, I was staying in a house with like no running water or no electricity, you know, and then going off to these like very fancy schools at the end of the weekend. And as a woman, you know i think of myself as as sort of straddling certain divides of womanhood because throughout my whole life i've been fat and thin over and over again i was kind of a chubby kid and my my family put me on my first diet when i was maybe 4 years old and you know as anyone who's dieted knows they work and then they don't work and so you sort of do it over and over if you're going to be stuck in that cycle which i was for the better part of four decades Until I, with great efforts, stopped dieting and really divested my energy from that project and all of its tentacles. So, as a woman, you know, we're so tied to what we look like in the culture. And so, I think that, like, having had, quote, the right kind of body and, quote, the wrong kind of body over time has just taught me things about womanhood, you know. So, I I offer this kind of resume of polarities, I guess, just to illustrate the balcony and the dance floor quality of my life, because what it means ultimately is that I have lived or lived close enough to that. It's almost like I've lived the privileged side of these divides and the subordinated side of these divides. And both often kind of make sense to me. I mean, my sympathies are always with the subordinated Side, right? Because that's just how I roll politically. But I often get the privileged side too. And of course, I have aspects of myself that are super privileged as well as subordinated. So, yeah, I think of myself in some ways as like certainly having double consciousness, you know, to use the famous phrase, or kind of having a dual citizenship or being kind of a polyglot, you know, who speaks lots of different languages. And something about that phrase just like encapsulated the feeling for me of being kind of on the inside and outside at once.
1: Yeah. I can imagine that it feels, you know, really complicated and, and I could really feel that having, having read the book and obviously, you know, I have such different circumstances and experience to you as, as we all do, but that feeling and so many of the feelings that you described, I could really feel or relate to in my in my own ways, which is, you know, really good writing. And I think your perspective is so interesting. And I learned so much through the book about that, through what you've experienced in a lo- really visceral way. And I mean, I'd it, love
0: to hear you say that, Katie, just because I think that we all have polarities within yeah. us right? If we're taking the body, we all have a body. right? And probably 99.9% of us have had moments where our bodies felt like they made us safe or they gave us pleasure or they, they gave us liberty or attention, like something positive. And we've also had times when our bodies felt like they made us unsafe or they made us embarrassed or awkward, right? Like we we all have felt duality within ourselves. I think maybe the difference for me is just how much duality there is. And the fact that I really, it's, I can't reconcile it. You know, there's no point in hiding from it or even trying to reconcile it because it's too foundational to who I am. But I, I hoped when I was writing and, you know, continue to hope now that the book is out there that people will relate because we all have had the experience of duality or belonging and not belonging in our lives.
1: Yeah. And it's true. And we do. I was like a little bit nervous to say it because obviously like I'm so privileged and I didn't know how to articulate that. I related in my own way. And so thank you for articulating that for me. (laughs) You are
0: welcome.
1: Um, (laughs) But yeah, you know, I I, to be honest, I wrote down so many notes in the dating chapter. I guess the dating essay.
0: That one is really striking a curve, like a striking a curve, striking a curve. That one is, I don't know, so much.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it it really. I read it twice, and I don't know if I told you this, but. I wanted to get the audiobook, which is really cool that you read it, and and I love your voice and like I know you, so it just felt really. And I re-listened to that chapter with Aww. you reading it, and it really hit differently. And I I highly recommend to the people who you know after we talk about this book, like warning, you're probably going to want to read it. And you know, if a lot of people who listen to podcasts, I think it might be be nice to get the the audiobook. But anyway, I, I wrote down a lot of notes about the dating chapter and although our experiences are so different, i I felt it all so deeply and related in my own way to a lot of what you shared really viscerally. And, you know, I think we can all relate and in, in some way and and it, it's not surprising to me that 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 chapter, as you said, is really hitting people because I think that dating and love and connection and intimacy are, I mean, a lot of what you shared in in all the chapters actually has this. So it's not this alone, but those things, especially, and and when I talk about them on the podcast, it's, it's the same thing are so universal that it was very good to see the world through your lens, starting in that area. It's the, I guess we should mention, it's the first chapter of the book and, and dating and intimacy, I think are like gave me a really good picture into you and who you were and how you were interacting in those spaces For
0: better and worse,
1: <laughs> yeah, and how especially when you were younger, you know like it was really yeah. and and i don't I'd never heard you share about this before, and so it really like I felt like I got to know you even if I'd never met you or weren't familiar with your work and I was just reading the book, it felt like a really smart place to start because yeah, like I said, you just got to know you through that lens. And then I felt like I knew you
0: in every other area better. And. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting, Katie. <laughs> I mean, some, I know I'm sort of cutting you off, but no, I just want no, say please. like every review has mentioned that essay, like it was excerpted in Harper's magazine. It's called on dating white guys. Well, me by the way. So it's mm-hmm. about, uh, I think yes, I've described my background. So people know I'm not white. It's about dating white guys or trying to wanting to hoping to, and even my agent who is a white guy, <laughs> like, but like deeply relates to that. Wow. Uh, so I don't know. There's some little like fairy came along and sprinkled, you know, stardust on the keyboard or something while I was writing that one. Because well, I mean, I he think he's
1: had, talented like, and lived a lot. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, but I mean, I think it also must be that the the craving to be chosen and to be Mm -hmm. loved is universal, right? And incredibly strong, you know, throughout our lives for most people, I think. So maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it is. I don't know.
1: Totally. I mean, I think I think about this all the time. Of like intimacy, right? Like intimacy is like we all want to be seen. We want to be seen, right? We want to be seen and known for who we really are. But that's so fucking scary that we hide because it feels worse to not be seen. It feels almost a little bit better to not be seen at all than to be seen for who we really are and not loved. You know, so we like make these versions or I make these versions of ourselves to be seen and loved. And I think that was what we see you doing again and again in this essay and you know i think dating and intimacy are also interesting and relatable universally and talked about so often and made art about because of that and mm-hmm. so yeah i guess i'd love to for you to to talk about the chapter a little bit and and why you decided to begin the book there you know like like i said it really drew me in but i'm curious was
0: that Always the plan? Well, I will definitely answer your question, but I just want to like circle back to what you were saying about, you know, the desire to to the need, the the craving, the the want, however you want to describe it, to be seen for who we are, um is sort of intention with our desire to like not really be seen, you know, with our all of our foibles and flaws, whether they're imagined or real and I love that. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from James Baldwin where he's talking about love, but she could, you know, you could sub in just the desire to be loved. But the quote is that love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. It's like so true, right? It just, yeah. if love is good, then it takes off all the layers of hiding that we are afraid to remove, but that we also can't live behind if we're going to live a full life. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I want everyone to have that kind of love. Um, As far as this piece goes, you know, we definitely went back and forth about what the order of the pieces should be just to kind of answer the more practical part of your question. And people had different opinions about what the, the lead piece should be. And I think ultimately we coalesced around this one because of the things that you've said, like the universality of, of longing and of unrequited love, you know, which probably almost everyone has experienced maybe Brad Pitt or something has not, you know, but probably he has.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and because some of the essays are more kind of like, abstract or just like this one has like it's sort of a, a familiar form the way it's written you know like it's like a kind of a nice narrative structure there's like a beginning a middle end I start in one place I end somewhere else and so the idea was that upon reading this uh, essay you know people would trust me to take them into sort of other territory that maybe yeah. a little less beginning, middle, end, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a little more interior. So that was the thinking about this piece. And it starts, you know, with me very deep in my former, but super strong longing to be chosen by a certain type of white man as a romantic partner, because I believed quite reasonably, actually, I mean, sadly, but also reasonably, that being chosen by a certain type of white guy would kind of lift me out of the pit of my own otherness, right? It would like undo my marginalization because of the cultural power that white men have, that when they select you, it's like a seal of approval, you know? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of my life, I felt so injured by not belonging, you know, as a Brown person, a black person, a fat person, a person who wasn't from money, but who moved in quite wealthy spaces and often quite white spaces that I just, it was like my goal in life to get chosen by sort of a upper crusty white guy. It's not actually how the story ended. (laughs) Like that's, that's not what my fate was, but The essay is about that search and the thrill of it and the pain of it and how I came to sort of open my eyes and realize that this quest that I had been on for, gosh, I don't know, 15 years, maybe more (laughs) to be chosen, you know, was really a quest for my own self-annihilation, right? It was like, if what I wanted was to escape my own otherness through being selected as a wife or girlfriend by one of these dudes, what I actually was asking for was was to be erased, right? It was to be sort of annihilated, to disappear. It's the story of how I came to see that and, and sort of how I reconcile my old... Desires with um, my newer ones. Yeah. But I mean, I should add, Katie, like it's not like everything is just neat and tidy and bound up with a ribbon. If I were fully at peace with that dynamic or that part of myself or these sort of relationships I had with these various white guys, I probably wouldn't have written about it. You know what I mean? Like you don't write about the things that don't still tug at you. So it's not as though I'm completely free of that wish, but I can right. see it and I don't write it into the sunset, you know, the way that I, the way that I used to without really any awareness.
1: Yeah. I mean, the part that I like, the whole reason I, I was like reading, I think I already said this, but I was reading this essay to a friend today and cause we were just, God, it was, yeah, I love this essay so much, but. You, you're you kind of mentioning it right now, but the ending of it, it's you kind of wrestling. I, I just, <laughs> I'm going to read you my notes because it's the last part of the relationship chapter. I don't even know what I mean by this, but I say, I want to go back to the ending of the relationship chapter. Talk about that. A ton of exclamation points. And then I, <laughs> because you say um, of why you're writing it and yeah, you. I, I wrote this quote down where you say, "My inability to fully let let it go," and like you really kind of meta get in there in the last few paragraphs, and I think that's kind of what you're describing right now.
0: Yeah, it's totally what I'm describing. It's. I think I refer to the writing of this piece as like a backwards facing hope. It's like me looking back, still kind of hoping that maybe I can squeeze out something, you know, from these white guys that I, I desired in this very particular kind of Gothic way, you know, speaking of meta. So like I changed the names. Of yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Of yeah, course, yeah. I figured. Yes. And, um, identifying details, you know, like if this guy was from Baltimore, maybe in the book, he's from, I don't know, Houston, like that's not real, but you know, just shifting little identifying details so that people can't triangulate who you're talking to. And one of those particular um, guys in that essay, you know, is someone who I actually still am sort of in touch with as friends. You know, we, we're, we're both married, you know, we both have kids and we, we have a tangential sort of like every once in a while keep in touch type relationship. So I actually sent him the essay before the book came out, just as a courtesy, you know, like not asking wow. for permission to run it, but just want you to know that I wrote this piece about me and you're in it. Oh my gosh, my stomach feels <laughs> so nervous hearing that. <laughs> well, don't be nervous because he said, okay, sure, send it to me. So I sent it. I was very nervous. And never heard back. Like, he wow. just never heard of it. I feel even like, based have- on that, I can guess <laughs> which character. <laughs> you're probably wrong. You know, oh. I mean, I don't know, maybe you're right, but you're probably wrong. <laughs> and we have been, we have spoken. Oh, since wow. Then. He just didn't even acknowledge that. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, interesting. And of course, that stung. Yeah, but it only of course. Because. I have not fully been able to let the stories go. You know, I don't desire to be with any of these men. I'm married to a different man. That's my husband. I don't still hold out desire for romantic approval from the guys that I write about, but I suppose a part of me still longs in some way that maybe is not something I can ever remove from my psyche for, like, just a little bit of approval on some level, you know? Yeah. I think many people do when we're talking about the people who are at the top of the social hierarchy, who doesn't want to be seen by someone at the top.
1: This episode is brought to you by Aviv. Aviv makes blender-free smoothie wheels. I... Couldn't even really conceive of what this was, but then I got a package. And let me tell you, it is so great to have them in my freezer at all times. I do a lot of things. I'm in, I'm out. I often forget to have what I need in the fridge. But knowing these are in the freezer is really, really great. It's a vegan, organic popsicle or ice cream alternative. I just pop them out. I'm eating them all day long. You know, I love a popsicle moment you can really make it your own you can add frozen fruit of your choice or vegetables like spinach and you can blend them or leave them out what makes aviv so special is that they have these delicious plant-based breakfast solutions high quality ingredients organic fruits and vegetables superfoods. they're plant-based protein rich in every single smoothie, no added sugar, no artificial flavors or preservatives. They're gluten-free, non-GMO, certified organic, vegan, free shipping, and it's really easy. All you do to prepare your blender-free smoothie is run the smoothie wheel underwater for a few seconds, pop the cubes in a mason jar, cover the cubes with your favorite liquid, so water, juice, plant-based milk, regular milk, whatever you like, and let it melt for about 20 minutes and shake. I don't even really do that. I just kind of like eat them as is or I'll, you know, maybe do a version of that. But I don't maybe it's just so hot here. I don't need to wait 20 minutes. You can just place your order, pick between 12, 24, or 36 in a box. Select your favorite smoothies. There's so many different options. There's a Yen one. The names are nice. They they all taste so good. Select your favorite smoothies, pick your desired delivery and frequency, and that's it. Their online smoothie subscription is completely customizable and commitment-free, which is nice. So go to vivenutrition.com. That's E-V-I-V-E nutrition.com. And at checkout, enter the code, let it out 20 for 20% off your first order. I really can't speak more highly of this brand. It's really, really been wonderful for me. This week's episode is brought to you by Glamnetic. I am so excited about this. So I tried... False lashes when I was in high school for the prom. And I'm pretty sure with the glue, I pulled out mm, pretty much all of my lashes from that. So, this company makes a product that is so cool. You can get rid of the lash glue for good when you want to wear false lashes what's really cool about this product is that you'll never have to show up late because you're trying to put in your lashes again i don't really wear luxe fancy makeup often but you know i might start because these are i think i am going to start in fact These are so easy to apply. It's so fun. And my friend Christine always talks about, you know, when she turned 30, she wanted to wear more glitter and actually like do more fun things with makeup. And I'm feeling the same way. And I think especially after the pandemic, it feels good to get dressed up and try new things. And I think if you have an event or a wedding, Glamnetic Magnetic Lashes are for you. They are created to save you time and money. And these lashes are a real game changer. They've sold over 500,000 pairs of lashes in 2020. And I hopped on the train, gave them a go. They're really, really cool. And I think you're gonna like them a lot. They make putting on lashes so easy. They're made to stand all day and they get applied in a second. Lash glue doesn't stand a chance with these. I think it's just a way better way to use a product like this if you're going to use it. And it's more environmentally friendly. It takes under a minute to apply with no toxic glue, no struggle up to 60 uses per lash so that's what makes it more eco-friendly and wallet friendly and there's over 75 styles which i really love from natural which is what i really go for or you can do like a full glam and you can do a different lash for every mood and you just go to their website and take a quiz from their lash guide to find the style that best suits you and what's cool is they have lashes for every eye shape and there's a 100 money back guarantee so there's really no reason to not try it and it supports the podcast if you do. So just give it a go over 500,000 happy customers expedited shipping with free shipping to the U S and Canada on orders of $30 or more. Find out for yourself why Glamnetic lashes are Instagram's favorite beauty hack. Go to Glamnetic.com slash let it out. That's G L A M N E T I C.com slash let it out and enter the code let It Out for 30% off your order. This code is only available for our listeners. That's glamnetic.com slash let it out and enter our promo code let it out at checkout for 30% off. I promise you guys, these lashes are literally applying themselves. Thank you, Glamnetic. Are you someone... Because I'm definitely in this way where like something challenging happens... Definitely with relationships for sure. Breakups for sure. But even like, like I got into a a pretty gnarly hiking accident on my birthday this year. And like, I kept going around to everyone, like trying to make meaning of it and Mm. being like, okay, so the, the lesson here is, so the lesson here, you know, and sometimes there's just not a fucking lesson, you know, yeah. or like it, but it doesn't I really matter. the same affliction, Katie. I'm like yeah. a real lesson hunter. Like, That's what I'm, I'm, and I think it's like, damn it. yeah. And I think I, I was talking to to my friend about this and she was like, well, that's fine. Like if it makes you feel better to try to have a lesson, like, make it a lesson, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's all. And I think it's a definitely like someone who is, and I think we are very similar in the way we feel things like feels things deeply. And it's being a, someone who writes, you know, and mm-hmm. and talks about their feelings. Like, I think it's really like when something's happening, sometimes I will be in it thinking about how I'm going to not even necessarily like write an essay about it, but definitely like often like this will happen like while i'm on a date or oh, i will be thinking about how i'm going to tell it to my friends which is terrible but i i can't not do it and i have to really like knock myself back into like just be here and then you can recall it later you know yeah hopefully so you're hopefully
0: you're similar it's like that saying you know nail yourself to the present moment which i well, gee, we all struggle with that one or it wouldn't be a saying, but I certainly struggle with it. Um, and I do have pretty good recall. I think as a writer, I'm, I'm just so observant of like human behavior. And, um, I think because I write, you know, I think I'm just sort of, I don't know which came first, but they somehow go together. And, uh, yeah, I have that same, I have that same, uh, I think a lot of creative people do, right. Like The
1: territory. Yeah. And I think there's something nice about it of, you know, I I often think of like songwriters, like something happens and you have somewhere to put that, or like if you know, any any sort of writer of like everything is copy, or like then I think it's like Neil Gaiman of like, make good art, right? Like your dog dies, make good art, like whatever it Mm. is. And there's something comforting of like something tough happens, but you have somewhere to put it and and process hard things. You know, it doesn't make them go away, it doesn't make them okay. But You know, and I think that the comforting part about that might be that by sharing it, you could help someone who relates feel less alone. And I think that we're we're wired as people, not in an altruistic way, but helping each other feels good to us. So Mm -hmm. therefore, that's how art helps us to feel better, making art and creativity, you know?
0: Yes, I do know. And I feel like I just should give a shout out as well here to like the power of a really rigorous editor. I was very lucky to have an incredible editor. Her name is Dawn Davis. And oddly enough, she left publishing after working on my book. And she's now the editor-in-chief at uh, Bon Appetit at at Conde Nast.
1: wow. Cool.
0: We'll call that a coincidence, right? (laughs) But she... I mean, among the many, many things that she helped me to become more skillful at was I discerning in my own work where what I was writing was sort of just for me versus where it was something that was art. Oh, wow. For other people, you know.
1: Journaling versus sharing.
0: Yes, exactly. And like, for sure, journaling is, I mean, gosh, I can't imagine my life without it. And I know you feel the same way. My style of writing in this book is I'm all over every page, right? It is, it's through, it's told through me. It's a memoir and essays. Um, But she was instrumental in helping me just see where I was like possibly veering a little too much into kind of, I'm exploring this just for myself versus the place you have to get a piece to, for it to be medicinal for other people not just for you. So, here's to editors and here's yeah. to the willingness to be edited which was also a process, you know. That was also something that I of course I have been edited but prior to writing this book, but working with an editor who's like on going through every piece with you was something that I had not done before and so that was a learning process as well. Yeah.
1: And very intimate.
0: Yes, extremely intimate. And, you know, when you're writing about yourself, like things can feel sort of precious or tender in a way that is totally appropriate and, and protects the work. And at times in a way that doesn't serve the work and causes you to cling to something that it just, I don't know, needs to be trimmed for whatever reason. And A really good friend of mine who works in film and television, when I was sort of struggling with the process of being edited, you know, because I'm someone who's written a lot, but like on her own. And I've had people edit my work professionally. Like, you know, when you write a legal brief, like many people look at it and help you improve it. But when I'd written op eds or essays I'd published as a freelancer, I really hadn't ever been edited. So this was a new experience. And my friend who works in film and television basically said, welcome to the NFL. (laughs) Like She was like, the difference between an amateur writer and a professional writer is your willingness to be edited and have your work criticized and elevated through the editing process. And that kind of uh, smacked a little sense into me. And I just say that in the context of this conversation, because I bet so many of your listeners are creative and artistic and writers. And I just want to sort of I don't know, flag that the editing process is essential and, and can be a learning curve. But ultimately, man, it really sharpens the blade on what you're doing creatively.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. I want to get into the essay, the dating essay a little bit more. right? Sure. And talk about the Blake character. You You describe... His aloofness in this way that I really related to, and you wrote alternating between warmth and chilliness, and I think that specific character and that description of that character specifically to to me i guess and and I'm curious if this is if you've heard this before, but really hit me hard and and I would love if we could get into a little bit because so my friends and I have this theory about dating and in relationships with people, you know, for earnest people who are tending towards people pleasing, I'm definitely one of those people, aloofness <laughs> is so alluring to me and tends to be what I'm drawn towards, yet so damaging <laughs> and really and really tough. And I and I really felt that in your dynamic with this person. And so I would love if you could talk about your thoughts on aloofness and, and being around people who are, you know, hot and cold and and why you think it is perhaps that you know we're so attracted to them and how that you you write about it, of course, in this, but how the the ups and downs for on the other end, on the other side of that, you know, I don't consider you aloof at all. You know, like I think we're probably similar in that way, like how you've wrestled with that and, you know, why that is so attractive to us (laughs) and letting that go. How do you do it?
0: (laughs) Oh my God. It's so funny. My, the same best friend who, you know, gave me the editing advice, Told me once that my type, you know, ro- with regard to romantic partners, was um, withholding. <laughs> oh God, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, darn it! It's so annoying because I'm such a heart on my sleeve, you know, yeah. puppy dog basically with people yeah. <laughs> that I I feel affection toward, and uh, yeah, there's something about a withholding person that is just so yeah.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I guess it's like pretty, like ripe for the picking. Of like, okay, you never know what you're gonna get, so that makes it more alluring. So then, when, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself of like having like deeply related to what you just said. Like for me, it's always been, and I've t- I recently was talking to our mutual friend Christy about about this in a context of a specific <laughs> situation for me, and she she pointed out aloofness, you know, and like how it's addictive, right? Like there's an addictive quality of like, you know, when you do get the approval from someone like that, it's so much, it hits so much differently than like someone like us, a hard on your sleeve type person, because, you know, I'm giving people compliments all day long, but to get something from someone who's aloof is different, you know?
0: Totally. There's a study that I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but somebody could Google it and correct me about what's called intermittent reinforcement, which is what you're describing. It's like where something is, uh, you know, you get the goody, but like in unpredictable intermittent ways. And basically like there were three groups of rats in this study. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to even talk about animal testing, but it's, it's an interesting study You know, the first group of rats, they press the button and they always got the goodie. The second group of rats press the button and they never got the goodie. And the third group press the button and like at random intervals would get the goodie. The first two groups eventually just like got bored. You know, it's like, okay, this thing always gives me a goodie or never gives me a goodie. Like I'm going on with my day. And then the third group, where it was unpredictable, um, became like obsessive, you know, and just were spending all day and night hitting the button. So there is something about having getting the goodie every once in a while and not yeah. never being able to predict when that is feels
1: like intuitive eating, diety, a little bit like similar. Yeah, kind of concept. I mean, it
0: triggers. I don't know, like I don't want to say compulsion. That's sort of a judgy word, but it can trigger kind of a I don't know, a hyper interest. Right. And I think, I mean, Blake, you know, I won't dwell on, on unpacking his character or whatever, but the the basic gist of it was that he was a guy with whom I had like, you know, it's just sort of nice chemistry as people, you know, we just kind of clicked and got along and he was at times very flirtatious and affectionate with me. And at times quite aloof or indifferent or you know, cool in a way that was like not about playing hard to get or something. It was just sort of cold. And uh, he fit that model of the kind of prototypical white guy that I was at that time so hopeful that I would sort of, you know, snag or land. And so, you know, we had that kind of relationship for for a minute. And I say relationship just meaning two people relating because I was never actually dating him or, uh, the other guys in that essay. But, you know, I think part of it with Blake is everything that we've talked about. And then another part of it, perhaps very specific to me and my own brain was that I, I approached Blake with everything that I did with Blake was like undergirded with, um, a belief that I didn't deserve him. Right. The whole reason I wanted him was because I thought I was just sort of so low in the hierarchy that the only way to kind of get higher was by not being myself, right? So everything I did was animated by basically like very low self-esteem. So the goodies felt really great, but there was also on another level, his aloofness or when he would kind of push me away, felt right, you know, on some very kind of dark level, it felt, it confirmed my sort of darkest beliefs about myself. And so it was alluring for that reason. And I don't know that everyone who's kind of an exuberant puppy dog has like low all the steam and therefore is attracted to aloofness. But in the case of this essay and the men that I'm writing about, that was certainly a factor.
1: Yeah, it it was really that character i feel like you know we spent a lot of time within the essay and really learned a lot about you through the way you described that and i think someone said to me you know i had i had something that was a real making words sometimes can be like so like dumb and cheesy but someone was like it was a situationship you know like it wasn't a relationship and <laughs> I, know. I know it's a like it's, <laughs> i know it's so dumb but it is true that like This this mutual friend of ours said this thing, I I was like describing something kind of similar where it was like never really a relationship, but like was kind of like everything. It's a relationship. You know what I mean? Like it's a human to human relationship, like definitely what you had with Blake. And I would say this thing that I'm thinking of as well, but I wouldn't let myself just like you're doing even now, even say it was a relationship because it's like, yeah, okay, well, we weren't dating well it's like okay fine but like any time two human beings like relate to each other technically semantics but relationship and he was just like it happens like someone gets more attached or someone gets scared or someone gets whatever and like then Mm -hmm. it's something to process and I think what what really hit me so much about this essay was through listening and reading your words I was able to like think of all these little tiny interactions and big interactions and medium sized interactions that I wasn't even allowing myself to like fully process. And I had just put somewhere thinking like, and, and you, we tell, you know, that line, I think it's like Joan Didion. I'm like, we tell ourselves stories in order, order to live, you know, like I had to like pocket things down to like, you know, just, not think about it because you have to protect yourself from your own mind to just do the day you know <laughs> and there's this especially heartbreaking part where where someone says to you making light of something and and they say like I can't even say it without getting emotional but they say like you were a warm body and then your response is no worries and hearing you say it like I had read it and then when I heard you read it when I got the audiobook like I just was fully weeping and it really was so relatable to me of 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 what we do as people and what we do as as women so often and and so i'm curious like what what helped you and shifted you you know you tell a little bit about what ended who you ended up marrying but what shifted to help you to not settle and react that way to such hurtful situations and learn to not accept that. Was there was there a moment or or over time some advice or you know what like I feel like I still am am doing that, you know, in in certain situations. And and you know, it doesn't feel good. And I think the older I get, like I'm more aware of it to and it's cringy. and, And I'm lucky that I have kind people around me mostly, but I, I I have definitely done things like that and almost still do. So I would love if you have any advice or anything that helped you make that shift.
0: I think that it was partly just my maturing. I'm an introspective person, maybe too much, (laughs) you know, too much self-assessment, self-analyzing, whatever. Um, and so to some degree, just as I got older and like matured mentally and emotionally, I I became, I think, more skeptical of that whole dynamic and sort of outgrew it somewhat. Like, you know, we talked about how it's not 100% gone, but I was able to see it. Whereas before I didn't really see it you know, um, I was just doing it, but I didn't have a lot of awareness about it. So I think my awareness just grew naturally. But I also think, you know, going back to poor Blake, I hope that he's not listening to this. Um, There was a moment with Blake where I don't want to say I confronted him, but for lack of like a more elegant way to say it, I, I sort of confronted him and was like, you know, what's the deal? You know, I feel like you're kind of leading me on here. And he was so angry. You know, I could speculate as to why, but I don't know because we never talked about it. But he was so angry and defensive and really furious with me for for bringing up this sort of strange dynamic in our relationship. And his anger, oddly enough, was kind of like a tonic for my own anger. Like he was so mad at me. I remember yeah. it, just recounting that, you know, that episode to a friend of mine who was also a white guy incidentally, but not one with whom I ever had this dynamic. You know, I, I have had normal relationships with, with people who are white and male and telling him this and, and I was sort of like feeling sad, you know, right after it happened. And my friend was like, God, this guy sounds like a prick. You know, maybe Blake is not a prick. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that's what my friend said. And he was like, Aren't you pissed? Why are you sad? You know, you should be angry that this guy reacted this way. And I did eventually become angry. And something about being angry helped me, I don't know, regain my center, like the process of allowing myself to feel angry and to feel wronged by how he acted toward me. Not that I wasn't part of it, it takes two to tango, but something about being able to feel and express my anger, not to him, but you know, I still was able to express it. Just, I don't know, it like shook the scales from my eyes a bit. It helped me see that the whole situation was fucked, like with all these guys, you know, to one degree or another, and that I could do something about my role in it. Couldn't really do anything about theirs, but I could do something about my own behavior
1: yeah that part um there i think it's it's similar around there but there's this part where you meet the girlfriend of someone i think it's i it's think it's like it yeah <laughs> and she's exactly you know kind of who we thought we'd expect they'd yeah, she's be like
0: physical opposite and yeah like class opposite you know
1: yeah that yeah
0: was, yeah as so far as i could tell from the little time i spent with her
1: yeah, it would. That part was really. It's so funny because I had, I had met someone, the girlfriend of someone who I had had a crush on in a similar but different, like unrequited situation. <laughs> and my version of that, reading yours, like it did that exactly what an, a wonderful essay can do, can be, or a great song. You know, like people can can relate to it and feel, you know, kind of put themselves in. And and this person for me wasn't exactly that they were my exact opposite but like to to me the way i saw it was like very very close but better you know <laughs> <laughs> and, um, everything I want like the to brand
0: be. version. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. Like down to, and I had just had that conversation with my friend Meredith who, who's done the show, but you know, I I'm describing her to, to Meredith and, and we had this very, like the day I was reading your book, I, I see them at a, the coffee shop and I'm like, hi, okay. Hi. And introduce, you know, and, and I'm describing her to Meredith and I'm like, the most perfect vintage Levi's, like, cause have been on the hunt for the vintage. <laughs> Levis, or, like it was just like every beat by beat, like it is was silly, you know, and it's all projection and it's all who knows, but like my version of, you know, and then that day I'm like reading your essay and I'm reading this far. And it's just like, you know, it's just an example of like how different scenario feeling
0: same, you know? <laughs> Yes. I I do know. And, and some of the advice that I have gotten over the years in terms of writing and certainly through writing this book is, you know, when you write in general terms, it doesn't root anywhere in people's yeah. hearts, but the more specific you can get, ironically, the, yeah. the deeper it can root in someone else, you know? And yeah. so I do describe this probably very lovely person with great specificity because her, her image is seared into my brain. Yeah. And uh, you're not the first person to say that, like that moment and that essay reminded them of some experience where they like saw the person who their love had chosen instead of them, you know? Yeah,
1: and there are so many moments like that. I'm so glad you brought that up because there, there's like another part where you're you're telling. I think you were kind of mentioning it before, where you're telling like how you felt essentially, and you you say it in a voicemail, and then he he acknowledges it at the end of an email, saying something like "Thanks for saying that," you know, and then that response ah, acknowledges I it. Cringe!
0: I still yeah. cringe. Cringe. <laughs> cringe! Oh my god! Thanks for saying that. Is like, I know. oh my god. I wanna- because it
1: acknowledges it and dismisses it at the same time. And it's just I know it's like, very
0: deft. You almost have to admire how skillful that was. Right. And it's it's so funny. Do you know the Sophie Colley
1: b- book called Take Care of Yourself? Uh-uh. Oh my god, Savala. Okay, well, I hope you come over soon. And it's this huge tabletop book. My like my best friend here, Zoe, got it for me for my birthday. And and she went to RISD and studied art and is, you know, like visual art and she she said is that and she's very practical like she's you know you and i are very like hard on our sleeves, and she's very solution oriented you know but she's friends with me so like she gets all the like blah, 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 and then he said this and then you know and so she yeah. said that this book was the intersection of the two of us and so i'm like oh cool so like thanks for the gift and so what it is and it's worth it's it's based off of an exhibit that this french artist sophie kelly did i think not that long ago maybe like 10 15 years ago And it's called take care of yourself because she got broken up with in an email. And the last line was take care of yourself. (laughs) And what she did for the exhibit was she had a hundred women in all different disciplines. Like there's an attorney. I have to, I'll send you a photo of that one. I'll find it. There's an attorney. There's like a teenager and the teenager this is so funny. And there's a, you know, a writer, like an editor, and they all take the email and and do their art or their work like with the email. Like the the mm-hmm. the lawyer did the legalities of it and the teenager is just the teenager is so funny. It's just like a text that says he thinks he is cool. <laughs> <laughs> and this sounds
0: fabulous. Yeah,
1: but it I reminded me it. of that, like that same line of like take care of yourself or "thanks, thanks for saying that. Or it's like saying that with a yeah, This one that I'm that I was like particularly relating to when I was reading yours. I remember Christy, our, our mutual friend, pointed out to me this one, you know, because that's what you know, girlfriends and therapy can really do with this kind of thing. But she said. no, it was actually, it was our friend Isabel who said this. He always Mm. wants to be a good guy. Right. Mm. And, and I, I felt that. And so everything he's doing is like to like tiptoe around of like, I want to come off as a good guy, but like, it's a little bit misplaced and it's a little bit, you know, and I felt the same with like something like, thanks for saying that. Like he didn't just not acknowledge it at all, but it's also like, pardon what?
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's a definite pardon what factor. And I'll never know how these guys perceived our connections. You know, I mean, I could speculate, and I do in the in the essay, but from my perspective, yeah, that was a terrible response. <laughs> Skillful in one way, but quite unskillful in another, right?
1: Totally. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Like I said, Saval is one of my favorite people and I truly loved her book so much. So please get yourself a copy and support her. And I hope you tune in next week. We cover a lot more of what we've kind of been dipping into here. And I think part two is when this conversation really comes alive. We get, she gives me maybe the best writing advice I've ever gotten in my life. And we talk about relationships and we get into motherhood a little bit and a little bit more about her book. So tune in next week. And in the meantime, if you want to sign up for In Process, our creative membership incubator, I would love to have you. And if you want to learn more about what that is, the link is in the show notes. If you have any questions about it, it's my favorite thing I've ever created. I did the first semester about a year ago, and I'm so happy that it exists. And it's a really great place to connect with other people who listen to this podcast and are gooey, tender feelings-filled folks, and I would love to have you there. So the link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. The emoji for this week's episode, gosh, I didn't have a chance to ask Savala, but let's just make it the book because this book was truly So wonderful. So comment the book emoji on her Instagram, on my Instagram, on Let It Out's Instagram. Please follow Let It Out. It's just Let It Out with three Ts on Instagram. And if you are listening to this episode, feel free to share it on Instagram and tag Let It Out and tag me and I'll repost it. And it helps us find other people who listen to the podcast and brings more people to it so I can keep doing it. And I'm just so grateful that you're here. So let me know if you listened all the way to the end and I will talk to you next week with part two of this conversation with Savala it's really really good I hope you join us then